Good evening. Welcome. Please join me in two opening songs as we gather together. There's a blue hymnal, the hymnal worship book number 26 in your pews. Please stand and we will sing all three verses. be seated. There's a smaller green book entitled Sing the Journey. Let's look at number 81. We will sing this through several times. Let's sing the first verse all in unison and then please break into parts as you wish.
In the spirit of worship, let us continue to pray. God in heaven, thank you for this day. God in heaven, thank you for the stars, the snow, the moon. God in heaven, thank you for this space. Thank you for Brian's gifts, ministry, willingness to serve you, willingness to share with us here in Goshen, Indiana. Continue to move in our midst here this evening. Amen. My name is Bob Yoder. I'm the campus pastor here at Goshen College, and I want to welcome all of you, students, faculty, staff, and the many guests and community members here uh, of Goshen. Welcome to the college here. We are grateful that you are here, and we're grateful that you will have opportunity to hear Brian and interact with him during our question and answer time and, and during our book signing time afterwards. So welcome. As I said, um, there will be a book signing time directly out those doors where Brian will be there for interaction. And after Brian presents uh, for, for a while, there'll be a time for questions and answers, interaction. And there are two mics located down here at the front of the aisles, of the two respective aisles. Um, tonight's uh, conversation and questions and answers are being taped, so we invite you and ask you that as you have questions, to please come to the mics and we'll have good conversation. Brian McLaren is a pastor, an author, an innovative Christian thinker, a father, a husband, and a friend to others and a mentor to others. I've appreciated um, seeing Brian interact on our campus over the last two days. He has met with uh, several of our classes, first year classes and, and, and upper level classes interacted with our faculty a couple of hours ago, interacted with um, all of our first-year students in, in, in a collective whole, uh, led chapel yesterday. Um, basically, when we as a planning committee uh, were planning for Brian's time, we decided to work him like a dog. And so he has taken it very well. But he also agreed to the schedule as well, so it's not, uh, not quite that bad. But he has had two very full days here at Goshen, and we are very grateful and thankful uh, for his energy and willingness to engage so many different people in so many different contexts of conversation. Brian is the author of eight books and has co-authored a number of books as well. Um, a Generous Orthodoxy, Church on the Other Side, Finding Faith are just a few of those books. Brian has been a pastor for the last 24 um, years or so, has started um, several churches and, and pastored at Cedar Ridge Community Church in Baltimore for the past 24 years and continued in that role until this past January. Brian has been um, active as a mentor to many church planters and church leaders since the mid-1980s. He now serves as chair of the board of directors of Sojourners uh, Call to Renewal uh, based in Washington, D.C., as I said, Brian is a husband, a father, and a spouse of a pastor now. Uh, his wife, Grace, they have been married for over 25 years. I think it was 27 years. And she is now kind of interim pastor of a church plant or church cell that has been birthed by Cedar Ridge. 
They have four young adult grown children, are empty nesters now for the last year and a half uh, of life. And again, we are very grateful to have Brian here. Well, thanks, everyone. I have been so warmly treated. Uh, Bob has been a fantastic host, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. I have a very big regret at this moment. That singing was so beautiful. Amen? I just feel terrible to talk. After that singing, I just want to keep singing. I, uh, I couldn't help but just feel, you know, this whole room became like a musical instrument, didn't it? And our voices were all contributing to it. And I couldn't help but think... Uh, that for human beings to decide to spend an evening harmonizing their voices in praise of our creator, well, among other things, it just keeps us from causing a lot of mischief. <laughs> and it sure adds beauty to the world. I was, uh, just a week ago Sunday, I had the opportunity to spend an evening at a Dominican monastery in uh, Washington, D.C., and if you've ever been around Dominicans, you know that they sing their daily office and everything is sung. And of course, the Dominicans, like every group, uh, ha they, they have a history with some ugly sides to it. Uh, but here is a group, of, I just thought what an amazing thing for a group of men, instead of to be running around like gangs, because men have all this aggressiveness that we can so destructively use, or instead of just trying to make as much money as they can or to try to, you know, all the things that we can do to get in trouble, here they spend their time several times a day harmonizing their voices in praise of our Creator. Such a good thing. And I'm, I just, uh, I'm very moved by that. I, uh, I better keep, I better start talking, otherwise I'll just ramble about the singing. But it was so great. Uh, I've been asked tonight to talk about spiritual formation in the emerging culture. I have a friend who has a mission statement. He says, my mission is reaching Christians for Christ, beginning with myself. Which suggests that it's possible to be a Christian without actually being a follower of Jesus. Now, maybe that shouldn't be true, but it seems to be true. Uh, and in fact, I think some people are staying away from being Christians because they would instead rather be a follower of Jesus and they're afraid if they get associated with a Christian religion it will make them less Christ-like. Uh, that's sad to say, but I meet a lot of people who say that sort of a thing. Uh, my, uh, one of my sons, when he was in high school, he was at that stage, I don't know if this happened to any of you, where your, your kids sort of dread having to go on, vaca on family vacation uh, because it means they'll be away from their friends. And I think part of this is very natural. There's this transfer going on where they're identifying more with their peer group and their generation than with their parents. That just seems to be part of life for a lot of people. So what we learned, the secret was at that stage in life was to invite them to bring a couple friends along on vacation and things went a lot better. So this one vacation, uh, I, my son Brett brought, brought along a friend of his named Dan. And Dan had been coming to church uh, with us for oh, maybe six or eight months. Uh, I, I shouldn't admit what we were going to do, but um, I, any of you fans of the Crocodile Hunter? Remember Steve Irwin? Well, we were on vacation in a place, and I knew there was a big rattlesnake den near this, so I was taking my son and his friend to go look at rattlesnakes. I, as I think about it, his parents probably wouldn't have been real happy about that, but 
if you don't tell them, I won't. Anyway, so we were driving up into the mountains to go to this rattlesnake den, and we're talking. And I said, Dan, uh, you know, you've been coming to church for a while. Tell me about you, where you're at with God. This is basically my method of evangelism is ask a person a question and then shut up and listen. And so Dan said, uh, oh, Mr. McLaren, he said, I've really enjoyed coming to church. You know, I've never been to church before in my life. I said, oh, really? Um, well, you know, tell me what, what's, what has been going on in your life spiritually. He said, well, you know, Mr. McLaren, I've always believed in God since I was a kid. He said, I was watching television and on some TV show when I was really little, like five years old, they prayed before the meal. And I remember my mother was watching television with me. I said, Mom, is there really a God? And she said, yes. And I've always believed in God ever since. Uh, he said, but I never went to church. So it's really nice that Brett asked me to go to church. I really like it. He said, uh, there's just one thing, Mr. McLaren. I said, what's that? He said, all I want to do is I want to learn the ways of Christ. I just don't want to become a Christian. I, uh, probably everything I know about pastoral counseling can be summarized in uh, the question, tell me about that. So I said, tell me about that, Dan. He said, oh, it's, it's Rebecca at school. He said, she used to be a really nice person. And then, you know, she got religious. And now nobody can stand her. <laughs> She, he said, she, she's always judging everybody. And, you know, she used to be fun to be around. He said, so I just want to be a, I just want to learn the ways of Christ, but I don't want to become a Christian. Sort of sad, but I understood exactly what he meant. And uh, I, I think probably some of us, including some of us pastors, feel the same way sometimes. What does it mean to be a, tr a follower of Jesus uh, and not just an adherent to a religion? I think this takes us back to a very familiar passage uh, the end of Matthew 28, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I just think it's so fascinating that that little phrase is included in there. Uh, that, the, that the Bible always gives us room to be honest about our faith uh, and about our doubts. When Jesus came to them, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You know, I think sometimes we balk at this because this is a verse that has been used in somewhat colonial ways to talk about go make converts. But you notice it doesn't say make converts. It says make disciples and it defines disciples as people who are identified through baptism in, in some way with, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're people who are actually learning how to live in the way Jesus taught. Uh, so the command is not to make converts, but to make people who are actually learning to live in Jesus' way. But I think one of the reasons some people feel funny about this is the word make in English feels a little bit coercive. Uh, so, but to, another way to say the same thing would be to say form or spiritually form. Form disciples or form apprentices of Jesus. Help form people who live in the way of Jesus. So that would mean that our mission as Christians, as Christian leaders, as churches, uh, is to actually form disciples. What is a disciple? Is we, it's someone who's learning to live in this way. So I'd like to talk a little bit about this word spiritual formation as the development of people who be, think, feel, work, relate, serve, play, who just live in the way of Jesus. 
this approach involves uh, not just education uh, in the sense of learning information, but it learns, it, it involves being formed in practices as a, uh, as a community, a, as apprentices. And someone who helped me uh, understand this and got me thinking about this uh, was a, an unlikely source, a Jewish chemist uh, named Michael Polanyi. Um, an interesting story. He was Hungarian, uh, but was working in Berlin. And when Hitler came to power, uh, some of his friends at the university said, you know, things are looking bad. Uh, there's a strong anti-Semitism here. You really should leave Berlin. You should leave Germany. He loved Germany. He loved Berlin. He didn't want to leave. He was offered a job in Manchester, England. And I think he just said, look, the intellectual life of Berlin is so vibrant. And, and you know, the, 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 I just don't want to leave. So he turned down the job in Manchester. And then as Hitler came more and more to power, uh, he, his friends urged him. They said, you've got to get out of here before it's too late. He called Manchester back and said, is that job still open? They said, yes. He said, I'll take it. And literally that day, he got on a train with his wife and I believe two boys and left. Later on, some of his belongings were sent to him, but just escaped before uh, the Jews started to be uh, taken away. And uh, you could imagine what it would be like to be an intellectual and a Jew who loved Germany and lived there for a long time, and, after, and, and to hear the reports of World War II, and then after World War II, as the news of the Holocaust comes out, you can imagine how this would affect you. And, and Polanyi began to ask the question that millions, uh, not millions, but probably many, many thousands of, of European intellectuals started to ask, how could this happen in Germany, the most but arguably the most the center of intellectual the intellectual life of the planet the the in many ways the uh, the, the brain center of the enlightenment i think probably a lot of people would have argued that berlin was was the most one of the most elevated cities in the world how could this happen in berlin how could it happen in germany uh, and he began to say, feel that there was something fundamentally wrong in the intellectual life of Europe and Western civilization in general. And in Manchester, England, started trying to figure that out. He did some unusual things. He, he, his question was, how could we have people who are so intellectually intelligent become so morally debased? And uh, he became convinced that there was a flaw in the Western approach to education that saw it as mind to mind and not life to life. So he, he, he became intrigued with apprenticeship. For example, and this to me is interesting to imagine a brilliant chemist. By the way, I think it, he, there were two areas he was considered a Nobel Prize contender, two completely different areas of research. Crystallography was one, I forget the other. But here's this brilliant chemist. He goes around Manchester to the leather tanning uh, shops and he, he, he goes to these, you know, what we would call just kind of uneducated blue-collar workers, and, and he says to them, how do you pick a good piece of leather? And they'd say, well, you know, here, feel it. And he'd touch this piece of leather, and then he'd touch this piece of leather, and they'd say, obviously, this one is better. How do you know that one is better? How did you learn that? And uh, that intrigued him, and eventually he wrote a very important book called personal knowledge toward a post-critical philosophy. 
he never went back to really become, a, to be a chemist. He became a moral philosopher. And, and this is a little passage out of this book. It follows that an art which has fallen into disuse for the period of a generation is altogether lost. There are hundreds of examples of this to which the process of mechanization is continuously adding new ones. These losses are usually irretrievable. I live in Maryland, just outside of DC. We have had an example of this. The National Cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral, uh, is, is a cathedral they tried to build in the style of the old European cathedrals. And it was a race to see if they could get enough money to finish the cathedral before the last artisans died who, ca who carried on some of these skills. Literally, there's not enough of a market for certain kinds of stained glass window making in the old style, certain kinds of stonework, certain kinds of wood woodwork. There, there's no market to keep it going. And so as the last of these artisans retire, there's no one to pick up the trade. And, and this is what he's referring to. It is pathetic to watch the endless efforts equipped with microscopy and chemistry with mathematics and electronics to reproduce a single violin of the kind the half-literate Stradivarius turned out as a matter of routine more than 200 years ago. Uh, he goes on, to learn by example is to submit to authority. You follow your master uh, because you trust him, his manner of doing things even when you cannot analyze and account in detail for its effectiveness. By watching the master and emulating his efforts in the presence of his example, the apprentice unconsciously picks up the rules of the art, including those which are not explicitly known to the master himself. Now, I, uh, I was thinking about this for a couple of reasons. I, I got a phone call some years ago uh, when I was a uh, pastor, and it was a Wednesday afternoon or something, and I get this phone call, uh, very deep voice, uh, hello, is this Brian McLaren? Yes. Uh, uh, my name is uh, such and such. Do you remember me? And uh, please never do that to anybody, you know? Uh, I, I, I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, help me out. He said, uh, I have a son named Nate. And in one of those funny little ways where the marble sort of spins around and then goes into the little hole, my brain goes, Nate, I was his summer camp counselor in 1975. He said, that's right. You taught him something. Remember what it was? <laughs> uh, now, what kids learn at summer camp, you know, there could be a lot of things. But I actually remembered because uh, this was a very sports-oriented camp, and this guy was uh, not interested in sports. And I had taught him guitar. I taught him how to play a few chords on the guitar. Uh, I said, I think I taught him guitar. He said, that's right. Uh, you told him something that, he, something that he should be sure to do as he left the camp. And I actually remembered as the father came to pick him up and he told his father, I learned how to play guitar. He learned four cards, four chords, C, E minor, A minor, G. We almost got F, but he couldn't quite get that. And, uh, uh, he, but as he was leaving, he, I said to him, uh, uh, his father said to me, uh, uh, well, I guess I'll have to buy him a guitar then. I said, well, my advice is buy a guitar, but don't buy a case. And, uh, and so I recalled, I think I told him to get a guitar, but not a case. And the father said, that's right. And, and I always told kids this, because I used to teach guitar lessons to kids a lot. I, I said, if you get a case, the danger is you'll put the guitar in the case and it'll go under a bed somewhere. But if you don't get a case, you'll leave it out. And every time you sit down, you'll pick it up and play it. So the father says, your advice worked. He, uh, my son, 
uh, eventually went to college, got a, uh, studied classical guitar, got a degree in music. Then he got a master in fine arts uh, in classical guitar. And while he was finishing up his master's degree, now this is back in the 1990s, he said while he was finishing his master's degree, Master Segovia heard him play and invited him to be one of his last group of students. Now, if you know about Segovia, Segovia was the Michael Jordan of uh, guitar, uh, which is sort of a terrible thing to say. But anyway, uh, and he said, uh, and my son studied with the master for several years. He said, last weekend, my son had his master recital. And I was sitting there, as you can imagine, a very proud father. And I thought of you, and I just thought you'd like to know that one of your camp boys went far. And then he said goodbye. And I, I, I was very moved, you know, when, when he got off the phone. Uh, and then I, I, and I, one of the things that struck me is I'd never heard the word master used so many times. Except, you know, you hear it in church. But you always hear it, master, slave. But this was a different use of the word master. It was master as master musician, master Segovia. And uh, of course, the whole idea of apprenticeship is that a master takes on students. He chooses students. With a real master, you, you can't go pay him. You have to be invited. And you become the master student. And when the master thinks you're ready, you have your master recital, after which you are a master, and you're allowed to take on students in the tradition of the master with whom you studied, you see. And I remember just thinking at that moment, you know, when I got off the phone, it, it, suddenly I thought, this is maybe going to help me understand Jesus a little bit more and the whole idea of discipleship. And when I read these words from Polanyi, he's talking about trusting yourself to a master and uh, uh, he goes on. Uh, These hidden rules can be assimilated only by a person who surrenders himself to that extent uncritically to the imitation of the master. A society which wants to preserve a fund of personal knowledge must submit to tradition. Practical wisdom is more truly embodied in action than expressed in rules of action. And since I read that, I've kept my ears open whenever I get to meet uh, someone who has learned through apprenticeship some skill. Uh, a man in my church uh, where I was pastor had a nephew who was uh, a great violin maker. And, uh, uh, and I met a couple of cello makers, uh, heard some people interviewed. And again and again, I heard stories that were, went like this. One woman was talking about she was a violin maker, and, uh, or a cello maker, and she was cutting a bow, hand cutting a bow. And you know that little hook on the end of a bow is called the frog. And she'd made dozens and dozens of bows, but one day she was cutting, and she cut off the frog on the end, and she said, well, that's odd. I've never done that before. And all of her work is gone. She has to start again, so she's cutting another bow. And she did the same thing, broke it again. She's, maybe any of you who golf, I, I don't myself, uh, uh, but if you golf, you know, sometimes they say, if you have a problem in your swing, you'd better just stop playing till you can go help somebody find what's wrong with it. Otherwise, you'll keep practicing the fault. Well, she felt that way. She said, I better not do any more cutting until I go back to my master who taught me. And so she goes back to her master and, it, and she brings the pieces and he looks at the pieces and studies them. And then he says, show me your stroke. And she takes her tool and does a stroke. 
And he just reaches over, takes her wrist, and cocks her wrist. And she never cuts another frog again. She, she never makes that mistake again. And, and she thinks when it's done. Now, how did he know that? Is there this secret rule book that says, you know, 28 and a half degree angle? No, because every wrist is different and every tool is different. Somehow through all this man's years of violin making and bow making and all the rest, he knows wood and he knows pressure. And, and there are things he knows that he could never put into words. And so when he reached over and cocked her wrist like that, it was just because of knowledge that could never be expressed in words. Or uh, I heard about another uh, violin maker and uh, you know, in trying to make these great violins, uh, they try everything to figure out how did Stradivarius do it? And one of the theories, I think there's some truth to this, is that Stradivarius happened to live at a time in history when in the previous couple of hundred years, there'd been some strange weather conditions that caused the spruce growing in the Alps to have grain of just the right distance because of unusually cold weather conditions, if I understand correctly. And so what this uh, violin maker said is his master would go over to uh, Austria and Switzerland uh, every few years and, uh, and, get, and acquire wood. But the problem is none, all those trees have been cut down. Um, so what he did is he says to his apprentice, come with me, we're going to go buy wood to stock up for the next couple of years. So they fly over to Switzerland. They rent a car, they go up into the Alps at a certain altitude, find a little town, they knock on a door of a cottage or a home in, in the Alps, and they say, excuse us, could we go up into your attic? And uh, the people say, you know, you're crazy. They say, we'll pay you a lot of money for the floorboards in your attic. So they go up in the attic, and the master with a crowbar pries up a piece of wood. He takes the wood and bounces it on his fingertips. Then he holds it up to his ear and knocks on it. He licks his finger and looks at the grain, and he says, this is a great piece of wood. You know, this is $45 a linear foot. Hands it to the apprentice. Apprentice goes, I mean, he doesn't know if he's tasting it, you know, but he, he trusts himself to the master to try to figure out what it is the master's doing. Then the master pries up another board and does this one. He says, oh, this one's worthless. And, and it's only by this sort of testing, uh, time and time again, they buy a couple pieces from that attic, go next door, knock on the next door for, a for you know, days or a couple weeks. Day after day, they select wood, go home with a huge load of wood. Two or three years later, come back for some more. Maybe the second time, they go up into the first attic and the master says to the apprentice, you try it this time. And so you start now and you do the ritual, right? But, but now you're getting a feel for it. Now here's the thing. You could never write how to select wood for violin for dummies, you know, with, with a set of rules. Because this is something that, is, that can never be codified as rules. It's a kind of knowledge that's actually contained in the fingertips. And it's contained, you know, in the ear. And it's a knowledge that's contained in the eye as you look at a certain kind of silky character to the grain. It could never ever just be put into a rule book. Now, I don't know if this strikes you, but here's the, when I read this, uh, page 54 of uh, this book, 
And I got to the sentence, practical wisdom is more truly embodied in action than expressed in rules of action. It was like a shiver went up my spine. And I thought, oh no. What if in the Christian faith, we became so enamored with books and with words on a page that we have preserved the rules of the art, but we've lost the art in the fingertips. Because all of us who are pastors know that there sometimes is a strange proportion. Sometimes the people who know the most information from this book are the meanest people in the church. So an increase in knowledge doesn't always translate into someone who has the art. Uh, I, uh, I wrote a, a book uh, that some of you may have read that tells the story of the conversion of this, uh, this young woman. Uh, it's called More Ready Than You Realize. And, and when, the book, uh, when uh, I wrote the book, with her permission, I used a bunch of her emails where she'd asked a lot of questions about her conversion. And uh, sometime, maybe a year after the book was written, she sent me an, another email, and uh, she had come to faith, and uh, uh, she, uh, she actually was a musician herself, a harpist, and she sent me an email, and the email said, Dear Brian, I hope you're sitting down. I think I should go to seminary and become a pastor. Uh, now you know why I thought you should be sitting down. And uh, so she ended up going to uh, seminary, and... Uh, uh, and I remember sometime in that, that process, she uh, asked if we could meet, uh, and um, she, said, uh, she said, you know I'm a musician. She said, I, I think you're going to, and she, she, I know, I, I love music too. She, she said, I'm going to ask you something that I think a musician would understand. She said, I'm going to seminary, and I'm learning a lot of theology, but I need private lessons. Now, you understand what that means. She, she's saying, I need more than I'm just getting from books. I, I need some help in figuring out what, it, what it's going to mean to be a pastor. And, and I think that's this idea of discipleship, of apprenticeship. One of the words that Polanyi used for this when he studied uh, the tanners and their selection of fine leather and grading of leather, he was also interested in connoisseurship, connoisseurs of wines and all the rest. He called it elbow knowledge said it's the knowledge you learn when you work in the shop, elbow to elbow with the master uh, and the apprentice. And this strikes me as one of the great challenges for the Christian community. Strange, isn't it? We have never had in the history of the Christian faith as many radio programs, television programs, books, tapes, CDs, DVDs, websites. There is no shortage in the transmission of religious information. Uh, and yet, I think we would agree, something is very wrong. Especially we Christians in America have to face this. Because we're in the richest nation in the history of, uh, well, in some ways we're the richest, in other ways we're the second or third richest. I don't want to quibble on this, but we're pretty rich certainly the most powerful. Our military budget as a nation is, you would have to take the next 25 nations, add all of their military budget together to equal our military budget. 
and most of them are our allies. So they'd all have to turn into our enemies and gang up on us in order for us to be threatened at all. And here, this is a nation with a very high percentage of, of Christians, and especially of people who really consider themselves committed Christians. And yet, we're surrounded by a world where two-thirds of the world are hungry, poor, lacking health care, and all the rest. And yet, we, our nation is excited about building a wall to keep them out. And we aren't excited about finding out how to make their lives better so they won't feel that the only way to survive is to come in. Strange. Something tells me that my friend was really right when he talked about needing to reach Christians for Christ. So maybe we could look at, back at the Gospels and see that Jesus working like a master musician or like a, a, a master instrument maker. He calls disciples to come to him to learn. And then after they've learned, he sends them out to play the music and to teach. This is why disciple and apostle are two sides of the same coin. A disciple is someone who's called to learn, but the purpose of being called to learn is so you can be sent out to play and to teach. And so in that sense, discipleship is equipping people for the mission of helping more and more people in the world learn to live in the way of Jesus. This approach is too rare. I don't know if any of you have read Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. Um, Dallas is a good friend of mine, an incredibly gentle and kind person. Uh, few people realize how under that quiet and calm philosopher's uh, exterior is this wild radical. And uh, he, he uh, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, he calls the, dom the sort of dominant approach uh, of the gospel of sin management. Uh, sin and its attendant guilt are problems that must be managed so one can go to heaven after death. And uh, in the a footnote in the back of Divine Conspiracy, I thought this was very clever. I said to Dallas, this is clever to hide your main point of your book uh, in, in a footnote. And he said to me, uh, those who should find it do. <laughs> uh, but here's what he said. Uh, the gospel of sin management produces vampire Christians who want Jesus for his blood and little else. <laughs> now that is what's called a zinger. You see, something has happened to where our understanding of the gospel has become, like the rest of our culture, a commodity where we want to help people in a fast, efficient, and convenient way go to heaven after they die. Kind of like banking or something. And I think that we would agree that it's time for us to actually get excited, more, more excited about following Jesus in this life than just escaping this life with as little sacrifice as possible. One way to say it is that our contemporary gospel is primarily information on how to go to heaven after you die with a large footnote about increasing your personal happiness and success through God, with a small footnote about character development, with a smaller footnote about spiritual experience, and with a basically illegible footnote about social and global transformation. Now, another way to say this is to say that... Um, is to say that uh, 
in some ways, our contemporary Western gospel has become something about the enhancement of self in this life and beyond this life. And rarely can we get people who, are con who in a sense, come to church because we've enticed them with, with blessings. Rarely can we get them to care about the church and even more rarely about the world. And this is my cynicism alert. Very often when we do get them to care about the world, it's so that we can get them into the church with their money so that our church will have more money for better programs so it will better meet my needs. Now that's cynical and I wish it weren't true, but I think there's some, at least some subconscious level of truth to it. My uh, daughter helped me understand this uh, several years ago. My, I have four wonderful kids and my oldest daughter, uh, when she graduated from college, I wanted to give her a, a really nice present because she had gotten a full scholarship and I'm Scottish, and uh, I appreciated that. But uh, uh, I, I, you know, I said, Rachel, anything you want, I want to give you anything I possibly can, but I have no idea what you want for a graduation present. Now, she's not the kind of person to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter, you know, so I, I, she said, Dad, what I really want more than anything else is I want a puppy. You and mom never would let us have a dog, which probably will mean lifelong scars of my psyche. So at least now, could you give me a puppy? I said, Rachel, I'd be glad to get you a puppy. What kind do you want? She said, I have no idea. Now, how, this was in about 2002 or 2003. How does a young person in 2002 choose a puppy? The internet, like everything else. Uh, so she goes on the internet, and there's a website where you answer about 120 questions and you, you know, click all these answers and then at the bottom you click the word, you know, submit, which I always get a kick out of, and then, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, something's going on there. And uh, then comes back a page that tells her the breed of puppy she should get and it was a breed I had never heard of. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this breed. It's called the Shiba Inu. Have you ever heard of this? It's a Japanese dog. Someone who knows Japanese told me it means dog in Japanese. But anyway, uh, uh, and you, so, you know, it says Shiba Inu, and then you click on Shiba Inu, and the Shiba Inu webpage com comes up. Now, I sometimes secretly wonder whether this was, whole thing is a front for the Shiba Inu society. And whatever you answer, it always tells you, wouldn't that be clever, you know, that that's the kind of dog you should get. Uh, but uh, it's it said about this dog, it's a pretty dog, it looks like a fox, very cute looking dog, and not too big, and it says this dog has many wonderful qualities, uh, foremost among them, this is a dog that does not bark. Now if you want a watchdog, that's not a great deal, but it's really nice for her, she lives in an apartment, this dog does not bark, looks good, doesn't shed very much, that's good, uh, and it goes on to say a lot of nice things about the dog, but there is one little throwaway sentence that should have alarmed us. Now, I, this is going to offend some of you, but please forgive me, but it said, this breed is more cat-like than dog-like. Which means that the dog is stupid, okay? Uh, <laughs> now, I, I, I like uh, cats, all right? But, uh, but this is the truth. <laughs> this is the truth. The Shiba Inu breed is incapable of learning its name. <laughs> this is really true. If, if you don't have the dog on a leash, it, run, it will run away and never come back. 
Uh, and, and so my daughter, she lives about four hours away, but she was visiting one weekend, and somebody came to our door early in the morning, and I just have this picture in my mind. Uh, and my daughter was very nervous about this because her dog had escaped once where she lives, and like at 10 at night, she had been she'd chased the dog almost all through the night, climbing over fences through backyards and stuff, and finally got the dog. So anyhow, she's visiting, the, a guest comes to the door and holds the door open just a second too long, and like I can still, the dog is standing here, the door is open there, and I just see this little flicker of enlightenment come to the dog's eyes, and you just see wildness, you know? And, and with, before anybody could do anything, the dog just, zips out the door, goes running down the street. My daughter is in her pajamas. She bursts into tears and runs to the kitchen, to the refrigerator, and opens the refrigerator door because she knows the dog doesn't know its name, but it loves cheese. <laughs> and it's a bourgeois dog, and it likes pre-grated cheese that comes in a bag, shredded cheese. <laughs> this is the truth. So my daughter cries goes to the refrigerator, grabs some cheese, grabs the leash, goes running down the street in her pajamas, screaming at the top of her lungs, shaking the bag, cheese, cheese, cheese. <laughs> now, I feel so bad, you know. So I go running after her, and we live on this long hill, and I'm just thinking, my neighbors are watching this. Here goes the dog, and he's as happy as, he's never been happier, you know. And so here's the dog, and here's my daughter yelling cheese, and here's the father running down the street, you know, watching this all happen. And, and so I see the dog off in the distance, and you just know what's going on in his mind. He's just running along, you know, thinking, cheese, I mean, thinking, freedom, 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 you know. And then you just see him go, freedom, 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 cheese, you know. <laughs> freedom, 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 cheese, cheese. <laughs> freedom, cheese! And he comes running back to my daughter, and she's, you know, down like this, holding the bag, cheese, cheese, cheese! And the dog comes, and she throws down the cheese, takes the leash, grabs the dog, and brings him home. And I, as I watched this, all I could think of is I thought, this is ministry. You know, you know, blessings, blessings, forgiveness, eternal life, depending on your denomination, prosperity, prosperity, you know, and then they come and then it's, we want you to tithe. <laughs> we want you to change diapers in the nursery, you know, and, 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 and this is what happens when this is our approach. And uh, I, I'd like to suggest that we have a slight problem of location and proportion that actually the good news is that God loves the world. That we shouldn't start with God's love for the individual and the self. We should start with God's love for the world. Now, I know it sounds heretical to say that God so loved the world. But when I say the world, let's think, just try this as a hypothesis. God loves creation. I, I know it sounds heretical to say this, but what if God loves sparrows and lilies of the field? And uh, God loves all human beings. And God loves things like intangible things, like culture and art and music and, and things like democracy and courage. And God loves all of this stuff. He loves the whole package. But in the world, human evil is destroying all of these good things and all of these beautiful things. 
from the sparrows and the lilies of the field to courage and loyalty and faithfulness and, and, and generosity. And, and it's destroying individual lives. I mean, there's just like this acid of addiction and greed and lust that takes beautiful things and just corrodes them and destroys them and kills them. And God loves the world, so God doesn't like this destruction that's going on. So God sends his son into the world, and one of the things his son is here to do is to establish a community that will, that will recruit people to stop spreading the acid and instead to join God in bringing love and healing and justice and goodness to the world. And so what salvation means for me is not that I escape the world, but that I get to be part of this community that stops polluting and destroying the world and starts joining God in the healing of the world. Now, I don't think that both of these can be true at the same time, you see. And this, I think, is the interesting challenge when we talk about spiritual formation. Because if we're trying to form this kind of person, it's very different than if we're trying to form this kind of person. And I think actually that this love for the world is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God. And so for spiritual formation means transformation, not just for myself, but for mission. So Christ is formed in me, so I become the kind of person Jesus was. I don't live for myself, but I join Jesus in living for, for others and living for the world. Now, when we pursue this, and, and let me just pause by saying, I mean, that's probably enough to say because in one sense, if we could just really seriously ask what is the gospel and what kinds of people are we trying to form, that would keep us busy for several years, I think, among our churches and in our Christian communities that we would say, what is this thing about? That is, I think, what we have to do. We always very quickly want to reach for solutions and if we reach for a solution without doing the, without reaching, we, we want therapy without getting a proper diagnosis. And if we take the diagnosis seriously enough, I think the therapy will come. But if we try the therapy without the real diagnosis, I don't think it will work. But when you look around the world, the people who are starting to see this problem and, and starting to take it seriously, they're rediscovering the importance of intentional spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. They're realizing that that's what happens in an apprenticeship. You learn to practice. You learn to practice the feel of wood. You learn to practice the, the stroke of cutting a bow. You learn to practice sensing the texture of good leather versus bad leather. You learn to practice on your tongue, learning what is a fine wine versus a, a mediocre wine. I would define a spiritual practice as an action within our power, which we do to train ourselves to do things currently beyond our power and to become people we are currently incapable of being. My same daughter, who has the dog, uh, decided to run a marathon a few years ago. And, um, uh, and I, I was so proud of her. I, I'm just, I, any of you who've run a marathon, I'm, I just am in awe. And, and it was one of the, really a proud day of my life when we went and watched her run this marathon. And it was so fantastic. And, um, and the, the worst part came is when I'm praising her after the marathon, she said, well, Dad, you could do it too. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, I, I said to her, uh, no, Rachel, I couldn't. I would die. And uh, she said, uh, well, I would have too. But she said, you know, anybody can run a marathon if you will, do pr if you will practice for six months. 
And of course, the way you learn to run 26 miles is by running one mile, and then running three miles, and then running six miles. You learn to do the thing you're incapable of doing by doing the thing you are capable of doing. And that's what a practice is. And this is how you learn any skill, including learning a language. Probably the most sophisticated thing any of us ever will learn to do, we learn to do by the age of four, which is sort of depressing. It's all downhill from there. But you learn by doing the thing within your power, and this is what a spiritual practice is. Fasting is a great example of this. Uh, I'll just tell you, when I fast, I never feel very spiritual, at least so far, and I've never felt very spiritual. Usually when I fast, I don't feel closer to God, I feel closer to pizza. <laughs> because uh, all I think of is, I think of pizza and I think of donuts when I fast. Uh, uh, several months ago I was fasting. I decided I was going to fast on a certain day and I was driving somewhere and I stopped and bought a bagel and I'm halfway through the bagel and I thought I was fasting today, you know, and, and I'd completely forgotten. But it was just because it's a habit of mine to eat. And so the practice of fasting, whenever I fast, one of the things I become aware of is how weak my will is to do what I say I want to do. Well, you know what? Knowing that you're weak is good for you. And then I practice impulse control and I reach for the M&Ms and I say, hold it, I'm fasting. And uh, I assert to myself that something is more important than gratifying that impulse and I, I try to stay with it because I say there is something more important than feeling good by gratifying my current impulse. Now, if I do that on some kind of a regular basis, and I do it over months, and I do it over years, maybe 10 years from now, I'm in the middle of a conversation with somebody, and they insult me, and something inside of me, an impulse rises up to just let them have it. But somehow, when the impulse starts to rise up, I go, you know what, I don't have to do that. And I think that there could be a connection of saying no to donuts that helps me say no to the impulse for revenge. And I think we probably all know that this was displayed to the world in this past week, that Amish community that didn't respond with revenge, they didn't do that because they decided that morning. They, in fact, they probably were able to do that not just because of a lifetime of commitment, they maybe were able to do that because of many generations of practice in non-retaliation, you see. So spiritual practices are things that we engage in because we want to do things we're incapable of doing. And there's all kinds of spiritual practices. Solitude, Sabbath, silence, study, spiritual direction, practicing God's presence, all kinds of things. Submission, self-denial. I don't have it listed there, but non-retaliation. Uh, all kinds of things that are spiritual practices. Um, the spiritual practice of secrecy, where you do good things for other people so that they'll, no one will ever know that you did it. Um, when we look back in Christian history, we, it's almost as if we have to go before the age of books to find people who had a deep appreciation for spiritual practices. The Celtic era is a great example. You know, when St. Patrick and the other Celts uh, uh, spread the, the gospel and, and made disciples across uh, the British Isles. They were dealing with violent people, uh, 
I, I mean, they were dealing with some pretty wild people. These are my ancestors. Uh, who knows what lurks in the, you know, deep in the minds of, uh, of uh, people. But uh, I, I got a little taste of this. My father is one of the gentlest people on the planet and uh, just a very kind man. And, and uh, some years ago, I was in a library. It had a, a book, like a book on clans, you know. So, my, so I looked up our clan, and it said that our clan was known for violence, pillaging, uh, and, uh, you know, for just being general hellraisers across Scotland. So I came home and I, I photocopied this. I gave it to my dad. I said, Dad, this is our ancestry. And he just very quietly sitting at the dinner table says, yes, everyone needs a little pillaging now and then. You know, I thought, <laughs> ooh, boy. You know, but, but here are people with a deeply ingrained culture of violence. And um, how would St. Patrick and the others help these people, they weren't going to give them books. And there, weren't, there were not very many good cable television religious broadcasts back then. So what they did is they taught the people practices. One of the practices when you woke up in the morning in those days, you know, they, you didn't take a shower, um, uh, but you would wash your face. There'd be a basin of cold water. So they taught the people, you know, your, things that they already did. We often talk about practicing our faith. They, in a sense, taught them to faith their practices. So they would teach them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit so that they would, in a sense, awaken themselves to God with that cold water splashing in their face. Another thing that you would do in those days, remember the hearth was the heart of the home and you'd always have a fire going. And you'd go to bed at night and put a lot of wood on the fire and you'd wake up in the morning and you'd stir the embers. And so uh, they would teach them a prayer for when they got up in the morning and they would pray, as I stir the embers of my fire, stir the embers of my heart, O God, with love toward you, toward my neighbor, and toward my enemy. Now think of what it would mean to pray that day by day, you see. So they, they taught them practices that helped them so that their goal was not to just be a member of a church, it was to learn a way of life. And brothers and sisters, this, I think, is what we so desperately need uh, in our world today. I'm just going to uh, skip ahead. But I would say as we move into this emerging culture, this, th that the old idea, now this might still be true in many parts of the country, but where I live and in many other parts of the world, it is not socially acceptable to go to church. You don't do it because it's expected of you and someone will think ill of you if you don't do it. And I think people are increasingly going to say, if our churches cannot actually help people experience transformation into increasing Christ-likeness, why would anyone, anybody want to be part of it? What actually is the purpose? Uh, what is it for? Now, I wish, you know, well, actually, I don't. I was going to say I wish I had the 3995 program that you could get in a box. But you see, this kind of formation simply cannot be that. It's the transformation of life on life. And I'll just tell you a story, and then we'll have 15 or 20 minutes for some comments or questions. But actually, seeing this class reminds me of the story. When I, I began to follow Christ as a teenager, and when I was about 19, I was invited to... I played the guitar and I was invited to uh, help lead worship on a retreat. And the retreat was run by this parachurch organization. And the man who was in charge of it, uh, I, there was like a, you know, a cafeteria where people were eating. 
And I came in for lunch and I saw him across the room sitting by himself and looking very forlorn. So I made my way through and got my food and I sat down with him and I said, Jim, you look terrible, what's wrong? And Jim said, uh, Brian, he said, you know, I, on purpose for this retreat, I invited people from several other organizations to try to show unity and cooperation as Christians. He said, but you see that guy at that table right over there? See those two people talking? Well, that other guy is from this other organization. And the guy he's with is one of my main donors, financial donors. And right now that guy is telling him why he should stop supporting me and s start supporting him. The reason I know it, because he had breakfast with that guy, and that guy came and told me after breakfast. And, uh, and Jim said, you know, it just really hurts. You try to include people, and then they turn on you. Now, I was 19. I said, well, Jim, what are you going to do? Like, it was a little bit like junior high, fight, fight. You know, I was thinking, you know, this might be interesting. And I'll never forget this. Jim, you know how in a, a restaurant, when you get ice water, condensation forms, you know. So Jim picks up his glass, and there's a little circle of water. And, and he, says, he says, Brian, what do you do when somebody draws a circle, and then he takes a little drop of water, you know, he sort of puts his finger alongside, puts a drop. He says, what do you do when somebody draws a circle, and you're outside of it? And I just sort of stared at him. And then he took his glass and he poured it out on the table. He says, you've got to draw a bigger circle that includes them in. And what I remember about that moment as a 19-year-old thinking, this is really deep and I don't understand what he's talking about. <laughs> but I probably should remember this. But what I remembered was he was in pain. It wasn't like, oh, let's just love everybody. It's all easy. He was in pain. He was angry. But he was sitting at that table wrestling with himself so that he would get to a place where he could draw the bigger circle. And somehow I felt like as he was even saying it, I was somehow seeing him decide that that's what he was going to do. That was a little bit of elbow knowledge that rubbed off on me. And brothers and sisters, this is the thing. Every single one of us can have that kind of elbow knowledge effect on other people. And... Um, I just think that this is, uh, this is the, uh, the sleeping giant. Uh, this is the sort of the secret, uh, almost unimagined power of the church. That we would realize that that elbow knowledge is what every single follower of Christ is gaining and can pass on. Uh, and that's what forms people spiritually. Well, we have about 15 minutes or 10 minutes now that I've talked way too much for some questions. So what we'll do is this is like baseball. So if you do, we'll sort of have the on-deck lines here. And if you have a question or comment, it could be about this, it could be about something else. Uh, please, I know it takes a lot of courage for the first few people, but please be courageous. And uh, it, it, we can have some discussion for a few minutes. I didn't give you much warning, but great, thank you. <laughs>